I've been thinking and praying about what we should focus on uh, in this month of December. Um, I've encouraged Mike to choose something that's somewhat Christmassy, if you will, because he's going to be preaching the week before Christmas. Um, and the Lord has really led me to preach on a series, just a short series, on being filled with the Spirit. And you'd be amazed at how the Gospel of Luke, the, the author himself, really focuses on this theme of the Holy Spirit. Really, it is throughout his Gospel, and of course it is throughout the book of Acts, which is what we're going to focus on this morning, and he is often called the charismatic evangelist as opposed to Matthew, Mark, or John. Though John does speak of the Spirit and the other gospel writers speak of the Spirit. We actually read a quote in Acts 1.5 that we're going to look at in which he says, the, 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 the one who's coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. But Luke is, he also includes this concept of being filled with the Spirit in the Christmas story. And so we're going to look at the Christmas story from that angle. But this morning I want us to talk about this idea that we find truly throughout the book of Acts and this idea of this concept of being filled with the Spirit. Uh, to introduce this, uh, I, I, I want you to do this past week uh, because I had my colonoscopy. Do I hear a whoo-hoo? Wonderful. Um, my goodness. I'm, I'm still just trying to get over all of that stuff that I had to take on Thursday, I think. It is, oh my goodness. But in, this is an interesting book. This is by David Down, and it's on archaeology. And in this book, he, he spends, you know, a, I personally find archaeology absolutely fascinating because so much of our dating of uh, events really throughout the world, B.C., um, and up to 2000, 3000 BC, uh, goes back to their dating of the events in Egypt. And lo and behold, they are finding out that the events of Egypt that are heavily relied upon their accuracy by a gentleman by the name of Manetho. He was a Greek historian around 2300 or so BC. And we're finding that he made mistakes and that dynasties overlapped and that much of the chronology that we base so much of the rest of the world's chronology has been mistaken. Uh, this is something that he, he talks about in his book. But what I want to focus on um, is this idea of pyramids. And all of us are aware of pyramids. And you're wondering, Mike, you're really introducing the Holy Spirit talking about pyramids? Well, follow me here, if you will. But... It, with these pyramids, the, the, the largest one is the Pyramid of Khufu. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, K-H-U-F-U, -U, and it's 481 feet high. Now, I want you to imagine 481 feet high. This thing is absolutely monstrous, and there, some of the stones that they used weighed 15 tons, 15 tons. That is, what, 30,000 pounds? Amazing. And, and so the question, of course, is they have an idea how they got these stones to the pyramid to, for it to be built, but they're still clueless as far as how they would be able to hoist this stone 15 tons up so high to be able to build this thing. Some would say, well, there were giants in the land, so they helped them. We don't know this. 
Um, the idea, though, that I want to bring to your attention, though, is this concept of gears and pulleys that <coughs> we, we truly have no idea as far as how far back these things go. But this concept of a pulley, when you use multiple pulleys, it's amazing how you're able to, in when you use these pulleys together, not just one, but many together, you are able to lift many times your strength. How many of you would love to be able to lift something many times what you're truly able right now? If you could, if you could lift 200 pounds, you'd be able to lift a thousand pounds. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, and this, Many of you are aware of the, the bow that uses the, what, they call the, what they call the compound bow, and they use a pulley system just like that, that once you reach here, just about the hardest place to pull on the pulley, the, uh, the bow, the pulleys start to operate, and it's easy to pull something back that otherwise would be extremely difficult. And we have what we call the compound bow, use of pulleys. This idea of, of the pulleys uh, I, I just thought it was a, a very, it's very fascinating invention in which you use multiple pulleys to be able to lift something many times your natural ability to lift. And this right here truly is this concept of the Holy Spirit when he empowers us. Our problem is, even as Christians, we want to walk in the natural. We want, and I'm not saying that when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to become Samson, okay? I'm not saying that, or Samsonette, whatever the female version of Samson is. I'm not saying this, but what I am saying is that what we can accomplish in the natural, the Holy Spirit's purpose is to anoint us and multiply that exponentially. And so here's my question to you. How many of you would love to be so bold, even in the face of death, you would not flinch, but you would be willing to proclaim Christ regardless, and you would be able to do it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that those who listen would be cut to the heart and would be drawn to Christ and that the kingdom of God would rapidly be multiplied throughout the earth. Now, I would venture to say that in this group gathered this morning, many of you, maybe all of you would say, yes, that is what I want. Now, I would venture to say, however, that many in the church today, right now, would be thinking to themselves, oh, that's what this sermon is about? Click, and they tune out. And here's why. Because they want to hear a sermon that is going to talk about how they can be happier and how they can overcome all of their problems in life and that how God can change their wife and, and also how God can change their husband and how God can change their children, how God can change their boss. And so, wow, if I pray, God will do all of these things for me. And truly, the church in America today has become very egocentric, very centered on ourselves. The early church was not that way. If it was, it rapidly changed because their lives were consumed, church, consumed with seeing the kingdom of God impact all of Israel. They had a view and a hope that God would rescue all of Israel and radically change them. Unfortunately, even though that was their prayer, many 
rejected Christ, and he eventually brought judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. But this was their hope. And I would venture to say it continued on, except it was beyond Jerusalem and Judea, and it was even to the ends of the earth. This is what consumed their daily lives. And so I believe that the message this morning is absolutely relevant because God wants to make his people, not a self-centered people who are all about God, please just fix my problems, please take care of me. And here's the amazing thing, and I'm just going to encourage you in this, but the more you're able to look beyond yourself to the world and minister and be poured out for other people, it is absolutely amazing what God will do inside of you and change you and fix you. And yes, Minister to your wife and your hu- or your husband, your children, and answer all of these things. But it's because we're pursuing him and his agenda, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do you follow me here? And so as we turn to Acts 6, I want us to look at just two verses here. Maybe it's three. In which this man by the name of Stephen, it says right there, In verse 5, as he was one of those that were filled with the Spirit and wisdom, qualified to be one of these uh, seven that were chosen to minister to the Greek widows, it says this about him. It says, could could you, this is still a little bit too too sharp, too loud, at least for me. Um, It says, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip. Now, we're going to learn about, or you would learn about Philip in chapter 8. We're not going to look at him today. I just want to briefly read a few verses about Stephen. Here's the man, and it says that he was full of faith and full of the Spirit. It says there in verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Verse 10, it says these men who were opposing him began to argue with Stephen, verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This work of the spirit that is talked about here is an empowering work of the Spirit. If you were to actually look at this concept of wisdom, wisdom focuses on character. Check this out in James 3. (coughs) Being filled with the Spirit, we read about it throughout Acts. It focuses the empowerment. And so consequently in verse 8, it doesn't take us by surprise. Here's He's filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to say he's full of God's grace and power and he did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen was not an an apostle. This idea that these miracles died out with the apostolic age, why? Because the the, the apostles were not around. That, 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 That doesn't line up with the book of Acts because people outside apostleship did signs and wonders. We can look at the life of of Philip. He did the same thing. Demons cast out, the lame walked, paralytics able to walk, the, the, the blind saw. Miracles happened. What amazes me is that the Spirit of God so filled him, so used him, that no one would be able to stand up 
against them. What? Just think about that for a moment. Have you, have you heard that expression before, just maybe even recently in the last few months? Was that not the promise that was given to Joshua? No one will be able to stand up against you. No one. Every enemy that you face, they will fall down. And our battle, as as I've expressed, is a spiritual battle. And we engage in this battle every day, whether you see it, whether you feel as if you're experiencing it or not. We engage, church, in a battle every day. It's a spiritual battle. There are demons and angels, and to the degree to which they are battling, I don't know. We see pictures of this, such as in Daniel and other places, Revelation 12 and so on. But the the truth is we, we don't see these things, but they are happening every day. And Ephesians 6 says our struggle is against these principalities, these demonic forces. And yet, these demonic forces could not attack oppose or withstand the power of God's spirit and the truth that was coming out of Stephen's mouth. He was so filled with the spirit, so anointed with the spirit. If you were to look at verse 15, it says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council, looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You remember Moses when he came down from the mountain because he had been in the presence of God? Maybe there is a little connection here, being in the presence of God and just radiating the the, the power, the love, the grace of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what he's getting at when he says that his face was like the face of an angel. I mean, I, I hope that there is something inside of you that's stirring and said, man, This is what I would like my life to be. I would like to be a witness for my Jesus like this. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to go through this rather briefly. um, And we're going to continue to go through it in the ensuing weeks. But I'm going to encourage you, in the theology class, we had opportunity to discuss what scripture calls the baptism with the spirit. And if you don't mind, as much as I can at least maybe remember, I want to substitute the word baptism with the word immersion. Now, here's here's why I'm doing this. And it's because many times this word baptize gets overworked and we think very narrowly. Uh, The word saved has come to be that way. Excellent word. It's an English word. Um translating the Greek word sozo to save. But many times, you you know me, I, I will translate the word rescue. Because for me, rescue, deliver, that, that's, that, that really describes what's happening. It's just that the word save can, in our culture, in our day, has, has been worked over and mentioned so much, it kind of loses its impact and meaning. And that's a shame. But And so I, I'm going to use the word immersion. Immersion in the Holy Spirit. If we were to look, go with me now to Acts chapter 1, if we were to look at it, we're going to see a promise of Jesus. And again, I mentioned that we're only going to touch on this briefly because I want to get to, um, I want to get to the second part of the message, and that is once being filled, is there a refilling or a reimmersion, if you will? To do that, I'm, I'm 
if you're interested in going deeper in this, look at the theology class on the Holy Spirit. We talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Again, that's brief, uh, but we talk about the baptism with the Spirit or the immersion in the Spirit in that class. You can go online and you can hear quite a bit more, but this morning I will just be touching on it. Very relevant subject in our day. Jesus himself in chapter 1, verse 5 said, for John baptized or, excuse me, for John uh, immersed, immersed you with water, but in a few days you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit or more literally in the Holy Spirit. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, he says. He is saying this probably close to the time in which he is lifted up. We read about the ascension of Christ. That happened 40 days after the Passover. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So that means that 10 days before Pentecost, Jesus is ascended on high. Now, they don't know that it's only going to be 10 days. He just says, hey, guys, hang out here in Jerusalem. And they did. But he gives this promise, and I would venture to say he probably touched on it several times during those 40 days with his disciples as he spoke about the kingdom of God. But the curious thing is that when we go to chapter 2, which is obviously what he's referring to, we don't read about this word baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit. Instead, what we find as we look over in chapter 2, verse 4, we find this phrase, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were filled with the Spirit. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Luke uses several synonyms for this idea of baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to do a fair, though very brief study right now to lay the foundation for the main subject here, we need to understand that he uses synonyms for baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit. We find the first one right here. They're filled with the Spirit. Now, we're going to come back to that word, but that is a synonym. I say it's a synonym again. Be, synonym? <laughs> it's a synonym because... This is predicted, Jesus predicted it, and at least 10 days later, they were baptized in the Spirit. It was fulfilled, but we don't see that word. Instead, we see this phrase, they were filled with the Spirit. So do you follow? If you were to flip over to Acts chapter 10, do that with me, we find more synonyms. Well, we're going to have cinnamon everywhere, aren't we? And so here, Peter has been asked to go into a Gentile home by the, a gentleman by the name of Cornelius. He is a commander in Caesar's army, and he, is, he has a number of the people, servants and probably family members in his house. Peter comes and he preaches, and at, he doesn't even have a chance to finish his sermon. The Holy Spirit falls, and it says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on. All who heard the message, underline that those words, came on. All who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. Underline that, those two words, poured out. Even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized or immersed in water? They have 
received, underline that word received. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now, if you were to go over to chapter 11, Peter is now explaining this situation that he actually went into a Gentile home, which would be considered a no-no for Jews. Don't go into a, the home of a Gentile. That they're unclean. But God had told him to do this, and so he's explaining this to them. And that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them just as upon, uh, on the Gentiles, just as upon them. And it says it this way in verse 15. As I began to speak, Peter is saying to now his friends, Jewish friends who have asked, why did you go into this Gentile home? He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. What beginning, church? What beginning? The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But we found there what phrase? Filled with the Spirit. In chapter 1, what phrase did we see? Baptized with the Spirit. But now, we, now, they, now they use this term, came on. The Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And so here we find now several synonyms. We see the word baptize or immerse. We see the word filled. We see the word receive. We, ser- we, we see the word come upon and the, the phrase poured out. So there are five phrases used throughout the book of Acts that Luke chooses to use interchangeably. It's not just baptized with or in the Holy Spirit or immersed in the Holy Spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, they were immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something curious that you find. And theologians have debated this. I have my position, and many would would concur with how I view this. So I'm not some guy out there in left field. But there are very excellent scholars. Uh, You can read Joy Unspeakable by Dr. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones, excellent book. He speaks about this. Um, He comes more from the Reformed tradition, but he holds the very same view that I do here that I'm about to share with you in a capsule like this. And that is this. As you go through these five occurrences in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to write these chapters down, in the class time, if you were to go online, I'll spend, I spend quite a bit more time on it, only a moment now. But in Acts chapter 1, they were filled with the Spirit. All of them were believers. The Spirit came upon them. But granted, this is unique. This is the first time the Holy Spirit actually comes. And so there is this sense of uniqueness there. We also see in chapter 8 in Samaria. So right, chapter 2, Pentecost. Chapter 8, Samaria. And Philip is now preaching the gospel. As I said before, demons are cast out. People are healed. And people are people believe in Jesus, they're baptized in water, and then several days later, because it takes time for word to get back to Jerusalem and for Peter and John to come, Peter and John are now in Samaria and they're laying hands on these people who have been who have believed and have been baptized with water, and it's and it says it this way Simon, that is Simon the sorcerer who was all about power, and he had just lost his entire, well, almost his entire audience 
to Christianity, and it even says that he believed. What exactly he believed? Was it sincere or not? We don't know. That's not what I want to focus on, though. This is what he says. It says, Simon saw that by the laying on of the apostles' hands, the people received the Spirit. And he says, give me this power that I, too, might be able to lay my hands on people and they receive the Spirit. So here's my question to you. What did Simon see? And here is my point. The, the giving of the Spirit is objective. It is not subjective. It's not something that just happens internally and you don't know it's happened. Many times people, when they trust in Christ, they, they don't necessarily feel something or they don't have an experience with if you, if you will, um, they, their life does change. For several of my children, there was a time frame. They, they don't know the exact day, several weeks, several months, sometimes even a couple of years in which God was doing something in their life. And at some point, God upended them and they, would, they, they fully trusted in Christ. For me, I can pinpoint a day when I was 14, but for many of you, Maybe not. And the reason is because faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, for the most part, is subjective. You don't necessarily see it happening, do you? You may not even experience something. Some people talk about a weight being lifted from their shoulders. Awesome experience. But regardless, you are a different person. You are a new creation in Christ. But this giving of the Spirit is objective. Simon saw. He didn't, they didn't weren't just laying on the hands and one after the other and observing nothing happening. There was something happening. I would suggest to you tongues or prophecy or some sort of manifestation of the Spirit. Acts chapter 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he gets converted. Now, we know that he gets converted on the road to Damascus, not several days later, because when he's sharing his testimony with King Agrippa, all the way in Acts chapter 26, he shares his testimony. That is, when he got saved. And all he focuses on is the road to Damascus. So I'm going to suggest to you, Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. Three days later, however, while he has been fasting and in prayer, Ananias comes to him, lays, and Ananias is just this normal, I'm sure very godly disciple. He's not, any, he's not uh, an official evangelist or apostle or prophet that we are aware of. He is just a man of God, a Jew who has trusted in Christ. He lays hands, because God told him to do this. He lays his hands on Paul while he's in Damascus because he's blind. He receives his sight and he is filled with the Spirit. Paul, that is. He receives his sight, and he is filled with the Spirit three days after he is converted. Now we move on to chapter 10 that I just read to you from Cornelius. At the very moment of their trusting in Christ, the Spirit of God lays into them. They are filled with the Spirit. It says they, they, they speak in tongues, and they are praising God, and you there is an Ob, there's an obvious objective manifestation of the Spirit. Now we move on to Acts chapter 19. Paul is ministering to the Ephesians, 
and when he moves into Ephesus and he, he comes across some disciples of John, and this is the question that he asks him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I don't know about you. If I were to walk up to you, Stephen, and I were to say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I would venture to say, Stephen, you would say, yes, I did. And I would ask you, well, how do you know? And I know your testimony. You would say, because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me that I received the Spirit. The Spirit comes in me and cleanses me and regenerates me and so on at my conversion. And so my question to you, is Paul really asking them a theological test question at this point? So did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Well, the Bible says that I did, so I'm going to trust the Bible. I'm going to suggest to you Paul is not asking a question that's subjective. That's like me asking you, so Jeff, did Jesus forgive you of your sins when you believed in him? And you would say, yes, yes, he did. And how do you do it? Now, you may have an experience in which you actually felt that burden lift from your shoulder. Did you then? Okay, all righty. Um, some of you, like myself, I didn't necessarily feel a weight lifted from my shoulders. So there was not an experience, if you will. But the Bible tells me that if I trust in Jesus, all of my sins are washed away. So if someone were to say, Mike, were you forgiven when you believed in Jesus? I would say, the Bible tells me so. Not because of an experience that I have, but the Bible tells me so. But that is not the question that Paul is asking here. He is assuming that their experience with the Holy Spirit was objective, just like with Simon, that they saw something happen, that there was a manifestation of the Spirit. And so I'm going to suggest to you that this, this baptism, this immersion, this filling, this pouring out and spirit coming upon, it is an objective reality. And throughout the book of Acts, it speaks of tongues and prophecy. It could be almost any manifestation. The Bible doesn't say what it has to be. But when the spirit comes on us, we would gather, as we look at the book of Acts, we would say, there's a manifestation of the spirit, some sort. It's an objective reality. If you were to look at any revival throughout history, the spirit comes and he does stuff. I'm sorry, that sounds overly simplified, I realize. But he does stuff. He, he, he wows. He, when he comes, miracles happen. When he comes, unusual things happen in every revival. And if you were just test me on this, research revivals throughout history. And unusual things happen when, when Charles Finney would be preaching the gospel. He would, be, he would be halfway through and people would start coming up and they would just start weeping uncontrollably. The Holy Spirit fell upon them and convicted them of their sin and they desperately wanted Christ in their life and to rescue them from their sin. He would walk through a business and people would, would meet his gaze and they would, they would say this, there was such a conviction by the Spirit when I, when I met his gaze. It's not just because he was some austere looking you know, type of evangelist. The Spirit of God ministered through him. And so I'm going to suggest to you, with every revival, it is objective. The Spirit of God comes, and he comes with power, and he does stuff. 
But here's what, if you were to look at the book of Acts, just stepping back, we see Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and then chapter 19. I'm going to suggest to you that this is not some anomaly. It's not just something that it's the church in transition. There is nowhere in the book of Acts or anywhere in the New Testament that would suggest that the giving of the Spirit, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, is because the church was in transition. That is a very common view today. Because this baptism with the Spirit, they say, always happens at conversion. Well, it didn't on the day of Pentecost. It didn't with Paul. It didn't with the Samaritans. And it more than likely didn't with the Ephesians. They gave their heart to Christ. They were baptized in water. That takes time, church. There were 12 of them. And then they received the Spirit and spoke in tongues and prophecy. And so all that I'm saying is we need to be careful that this gift of the Spirit that he is focusing on here does not always come at conversion. Now, many of you believe this. Many of you have been immersed in the Spirit. And if you were to look here to my right, you would this right here would represent you. You have been filled with the Spirit, and just like this glass of water, and that that's, yep, the Spirit of God filled me. I want us to look at something, though, and I want to challenge us because that is an improper illustration. And there is something that when we look through the book of Acts, we see more. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, what happened? They were filled with the Spirit. But then look with me, if you will, to chapter, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin. And it says... In verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he begins to preach, and it impacts them, because they, they say in verse 15 that they were impacted, excuse me, 13, by the courage of Peter, and they, that he was unschooled, and he was just an ordinary, unlettered man, but they could tell he'd been with Jesus. Well, that's, that's a sermon in, in and of itself, that they could tell he had, they had been with Jesus. But it says right there in verse 8, then Peter filled with the Spirit. They are, it, it, the, the Greek does not imply that he was filled with the Spirit back on Pentecost, but at that moment, he is being filled with the Spirit. Now, the way I filled this glass, you could probably fit a little bit more water only because I knew I had to carry this into the sanctuary and didn't want to spill it. Imagine it's though filled up to the top. How much more water can you fill this with? All right, not a whole lot, if any. But the book of Acts, just we just read that he was filled with the Spirit. Not past tense as if it happened back on the day of Pentecost, but at that moment he's filled. What, you're going to fill this with more water? Now turn with me to chapter 4, verse 31. It says, after they had been persecuted, because this Peter really, really got into the face of the Sanhedrin, they punished them. And it says, after they, and he came back to the, his, his brothers and they prayed, and it says, after they prayed, 
the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Wait a second, again? I mean, if that glass is full, where are you going to pour the water? I mean, if you're filled with the Spirit, how can, you, how, can you, how can the Spirit fill you more? So I'm going to suggest that this illustration of a cup is an improper one. And I want you to see this sponge. Here's something interesting. That we are immersed in the Spirit. So that means that you and I, when we're baptized, we are placed in the spirit and overwhelmed, if you will, surrounded by the spirit. That is this idea of immersion, right? However, the synonym filled with the spirit actually means that the spirit is poured into us. And so we are filled up with the spirit. And so we almost, we we really have two illustrations here. One in which or pictures, that's what I mean by illustrations, in which when we're baptized or immersed, we are immersed in the Spirit, and yet filled with the Spirit means that thing that we are immersed in is actually filling us. How can this be? So here I have a a sponge, and I hope this works. I used it with a different sponge, so let's see if this is going to work. And I am going to squeeze it, because you know that's how you can fill a sponge really well, right? How many of you ever squeezed a sponge and then you immersed it in water? Raise your hand. Okay, a couple of us. And I'm going to immerse it in the water here. So now that I've immersed it in the water, my sponge is actually filled with the water. But look at this. What's happening to the water? It's coming out, okay? Guess what? I'm going to do this again. And it's going to get filled with water again but the water is draining out. And I'm going to suggest to you that that would be a much clearer illustration of the Holy Spirit in us. Notice that when I immersed it, I squeezed him. And many times, and we see it here, the people of God are brought to this place through the pressures in this case, persecution about them, squeezing them, forcing them to cry out to God. And I'm going to word it this way. We can say the Sanhedrin is squeezing them. In in God's sovereignty, he is allowing them to be squeezed and pressed in about and to the point where they cry out to God, help us, God. We are on this mission and we cannot do it without you. Help us, God. And and there's this sense of desperation. And if we were to look at the entire passage, this concept, they use the word despot to to refer to God, a sense of sovereignty, the one and only ruling king. You are the one that we are seeking right now. Help us in this difficult time. We want to be bold. We don't want to shrink back. The, 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 The gospel for the rest of the ages, as we inherited this kingdom, is going to be impacted by what happens with us right now. For for the apostles and those gathered in that room, whatever we do right now, if we're going to shrink back, then then God's going to have to choose a plan B. But we cannot do this. This is what he has told us to do. We must have boldness, God, and we must be empowered by your spirit. And so what happens? And they were filled with the spirit again. And here's a reality check, church. As godly as many of you may be, you need to be filled with the Spirit over and over again. 
over and over again. You may have had a conversion experience. Awesome, that is what, that's what qualifies you to be able to enter into his kingdom. You may have been filled with the Spirit or baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit may have, been come, have come upon you or poured out upon you. You may have received the Spirit. Great, that's awesome. And you have received this empowerment of the Spirit. And I would venture to say then that the gifts of the Spirit flow through you. Different gifts, different people. And by the way, the word received, Luke purposefully uses it differently than Paul does. Just same thing with the word filled here. When, excuse me, when he uses the word received, he means more than just the spirit coming in and converting my soul and forgiving me of my, washing away my sins. That happens at conversion. But we noticed many times that the spirit was not given. Actually, only one example of the five did this filling or baptism happen at conversion. And I've heard theologians rationalize and talk about why that is, and this is just very special, and that it's just trying to mirror Acts 1.8 that says, and you'll be my, the Spirit of God will come upon you and receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And so this, Luke's purpose then is to talk about the Spirit being poured out in those concentric circles of Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But if you study it, that's not how the book of Acts is laid out. Actually, yes, in Jerusalem in chapter 2 and in Samaria in chapter 8. But what about Paul in chapter 9? What about Cornelius? Is that the ends of the earth? And why do we need an Acts 19 in which the Ephesian disciples, you know, many, you know, many years after the Spirit has already gone or in the process of going to the ends of the earth, what's Luke's purpose in talking about that? So we need to just simply settle with this idea that the, the concept of receiving the Spirit as Luke is talking about it is an empowering work of the Spirit. His focus is not conversion. But even Paul himself, in Acts chapter 9, he's filled with the Spirit. But turn with me, <clears throat> excuse me, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, verse 9. He's just starting his missionary journey with, with Barnabas. They're on the island of Cyprus. They're ministering, <clears throat> excuse me, to the proconsul. And his attendant is a demoniac. And I mean that. Elemas is his name. <clears throat> also, he's a false prophet. He's a Jewish sorcerer. Luke tells us, and it says there in verse 9, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. And he was struck with blindness. Paul, even though he was filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 9, is now filled again. And may I venture to say again and again and again. And so here's my question. And I'm going to dangle it and, and answer it to a degree. We're going to look at it um, some more next week and so on. But how do we get filled over and over again with his spirit? 
This is crucial, church. If there is going to be a worldwide revival, Jesus cannot do it with half-filled Christians. We cannot do it with Christians who are sitting on the shelf. He cannot do it with people operating in the flesh with their own talents and abilities. They must be empowered by the Spirit using the gifts of the Spirit to be bold witnesses and speak by the power of the Spirit. And as we're going to look at next week, be mighty in spirit. How does this happen? I've had some one person say, you know what? The reason, here's how I know for sure that this baptism with the Spirit, it's not just talking about empowering. It's just converting. They're just being converted. It's because we are never told to pray for the Holy Spirit. And I looked at him. I said, really? I mean, do you really, do you really believe that? And do you really hold to that? He said, absolutely. And I said, then what do you suppose Luke, who is the author of Acts, meant in Luke chapter 11? And I want you to go there right now, if you will. Luke chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me preface it with this. The disciples asked Jesus, please teach us how to pray. So he gives them the Lord's Prayer. He then gives them a parable. He then goes on to kind of bring the parable home, and he says, you need to ask, because if you ask, you'll receive. You need to seek, because then you will find. You need to knock, and at that point, the door will be open. You almost get this progressive sense of intensity. Ask, seek, knock, almost a sense of urgency, if you will. And, and the purpose is because he's reflecting back on this friend who was with such bold persistence, knocks at midnight on his friend's door. I need bread. I just had some people visit me, and I need bread. Come on, please. Really, I'm in bed with my family. And and back then, there was one bedroom. They were all family slept together, okay? I'm in bed with my family. Really? But he says he's going to get up because the guy keeps knocking with bold persistence. So asking, seeking, knocking, we see this progressive sense of bold persistence. But here's where I'm going with it. Jesus then in verse 13 says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Your Father. Your Father in heaven wants to give you his Holy Spirit. If you call him your father, if he is your father, that makes you his son, his daughter, his child. So here he is, he's speaking to a, a child of God, and he in essence is saying, if you ask him, he will give you his Holy Spirit. So a child of God, Jesus is saying, should be asking for the Holy Spirit. So I looked at the person and I said, does that not seem pretty clear and obvious to you that we are supposed to ask for the Holy Spirit? As a matter of fact, when Jesus was, was ascended and there were 10 days left, it says at the very end of Luke 24 that they continually met in the temple courts theologizing, debating who would win the next Super Bowl, talking about whether there should be a coliseum to hold gladiators or not. 
got into marvelous political debates. No, they worshiped God. And if you were to go to Acts chapter 1, again, this is Luke. Luke, The gospel is written to Theophilus, and the book of Acts is written to Theophilus as well. It's kind of like the sequel to the gospel. And so he, he backs up, goes into a little bit more depth, but it basically says in Acts chapter 1, it says that for those 10 days, yes, end of Luke tells us they continually met in the temple courts and they were worshiping God. That's how they occupied their time. These fishermen, these tax collectors, they laid aside their duties of, of providing for their families in Galilee because that's where they were all from. They're in Jerusalem, and for 10 days they are seeking God, and they are worshiping him, and they are increasing, I would imagine, in this sense of intimacy with their heavenly Father. And as they are children, what do you suppose that they would be doing in addition to worshiping. And it says in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with all of his brothers. And it says in the next verse, there were 120 of them. Can you imagine 120? And they're constantly worshiping, constantly in prayer for that entire 10 days. What do you suppose they're praying about? Jesus just left them. I'm going to baptize you. I'm going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Do you not think that their focus would be this thing, this event, whatever, however it was going to happen? Because they didn't know. They didn't, they, they, you know, we see Pentecost hindsight 2020, but they're looking ahead. I, I don't know how God's going to do this, but He's going to pour out His Spirit. He's going to baptize us, immerse us in his spirit. And this obviously is what they're praying about because it's going to embolden them and they're going to be his witnesses and people are going to get saved all over the earth and the kingdom of God is going to grow. This is what they were praying about. They were praying about this immersion in the spirit and how it would radically change them. So please don't tell me that scripture does not tell us to pray for the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to conclude with this. I'm, I'm just going to ask you this morning, where are you at? For many of you, you are like this, this sponge. Maybe you've been filled with the Spirit and you just through the pressures of life, just through the temptations of sin, just through exposure to the world, even the apostles needed to be filled with the Spirit again. Where are you at? Do you feel drained? Do you feel weary? Has the enemy kind of got you in the side there and has discouraged you? You know, I realized that for me, uh, I, I noticed that in my prayer life, I had to say, God, I, there's some an element of discouragement here. I don't want any part of this. And I'm going to ask you this morning, would you join me as we ask God to fill us again with his spirit? Can he do this? 
and we ask God that he would come and that he would immerse us again in his spirit. And for some of you, he is going to do this and you can feel it in your life. And he is squeezing you because he's wanting to immerse you again and fill you so that being filled with the spirit, we can speak the word of God boldly. And I'm going to tell you this right now, that to speak with speak the word of God boldly, you must be filled with faith. And here's the amazing thing about about Stephen. He understood this, what I'm sharing with you this morning. And so that it was said of him, he was a man full of the spirit, constantly, constantly filled with the spirit. If you've been immersed in the spirit, that's great. But please do not think that your cup is full and you do not need it to be refilled. That is not what I see in Scripture, and especially in these passages and acts that we've looked at. And so can you stand with me? And I'm going to ask you, are you desiring to be filled again, to be immersed again with His Spirit, to be empowered in His Spirit? And I'm going to encourage you, stop looking at the problems in your life. Stop looking at how you, Jesus, fix me. Just do stuff for me. I'm going to ask you, if you're, when your focus is outward and you're seeking first the kingdom of God, that is the heartbeat of your father. And for this reason, he wants to fill you again with his spirit. So let's pray, church. Can we? Happy Spirit of God, we come boldly before you. And by the way, church, if you want to come to the altar, if you want to kneel there, let's just cry out to God. I'm going to lead in prayer, but I want you to pray. And you ask him to fill you with his spirit. Ask him, immerse me. Jesus, you're the baptizer. Immerse me in your spirit right now. And God, I ask that you would do that. Do that for me right now. Any discouragement, gone in Jesus' name. I'm asking you, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit and that you, you, Father, if you have to press us about, impress us, empty us of me and fill us with you, with your spirit. God, a day is going to come and it's just like my dad. I'm going to be promoted to your heavenly glory. And I want my life to count. I don't want to look back on my life with regret. I don't want to have fallen into the trap of theologizing the Holy Spirit just because I've not experienced his power. I want to be a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Make me such a man, O God. Make us such men and women, O God. Father in heaven, we are asking for your spirit again, and we are asking that you immerse us, that you fill us, that it would overflow, that we would be your bold witnesses, God, and that when we speak, your spirit would challenge hearts and would change lives, and that families would be rescued from their burning, burning houses, God. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy and we see the signs of the curse of sin and death everywhere. The walking dead are everywhere, God. 
without life, without hope, and without God in this world. Today, God, we are asking you, Spirit of God, burden our hearts, squeeze us, God, so that we would be filled up again. Don't let us be emptied so easily. Let us let us walk in your spirit. Let us, let us retain and, and, and daily move about in the fullness of your spirit, God. Fill us with your spirit, God. Fill us with your spirit, God. Immerse us in you, God. Immerse us, oh God, in Jesus' name. Don't let the devil rob us, God, of this opportunity. Don't let the devil squeeze you out of our lives. God, I pray that as we are filled with your spirit, we would be committed to speak boldly. Our, our eyes, our focus would no longer be upon ourselves, God. It would only be on you. Father, I pray for a manifestation of your spirit, Lord. I pray for an outpouring, God, and a working of your spirit in us. This is an objective move of your spirit. God, I'm asking you, Lord, that you would speak through us and you would speak to us and that, God, we would go from here changed because we have been filled with your spirit. Spirit of God, come. Wash over us. Wash over us, over us, God. Wash over us, Spirit of God. Father, for those who have been seeking a, a move of your Spirit to be able to prophesy the word of the Lord, give them prophecy. For those who have been seeking to have a prayer language and speak in other tongues, then God, you give them this. Spirit of God, come. Empower us. Come, Lord. Fill us up again, God. Father, show us what it is to be mighty in spirit. We want to be fully equipped to fill our bags every day. So I'm just asking you, God, Squeeze me in and fill me up again. Fill me up again, God. If you're seeking him this morning, in this moment, this is a good time, my friends, that we ask him. He says, eagerly desiring spiritual gifts, especially because you ask for it. Ask for it. God moves in you. I don't want to operate in my own strength. I want your strength compounded in me, God. Let's just take some time right now. As you're done, as you're seeking him, whether you're at the altar or at your seat, I'm just going to ask you when you're done, you can feel free to go into the welcome center, have food and fellowship. Church, let's just see.